This is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Our subject today is, in many ways, our guest, Alec Stapp. Alec is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Institute for Progress, a recently launched think tank dedicated to accelerating scientific, technological, and industrial progress while safeguarding humanity's future. Now, those are lofty sounding goals, but by way of disclosure, I previously actually worked with Alec on a range of policy issues at another think tank, and I believe that if anyone can live up to those goals, it's going to be Alec. So today, we're talking with Alec Stapp about Alec Stapp and how he thinks about accelerating scientific, technological, and industrial progress while safeguarding humanity's future. Alec, welcome to Tech Refactored. Thanks for having me, guys. That's too kind of an introduction. I hope I can only live up to it. Oh, I, I hope you do uh, too, Alec. But uh, I, I always enjoy talking to you and always learn when I'm talking to you. And uh, you have a remarkable way of thinking about the world and thinking about problems. And uh, that, that's what I'm hoping we can get into and explore a little bit um, today. I, I want to uh, start with a little bit about the Institute for Progress and just start by asking, what is the Institute for Progress? Yeah, it's a, a Washington, D.C.-based research and advocacy organization. We're a multi-issue think tank, meaning we do more than just one thing. We're starting out with three core areas. We'll expand beyond those in the future to cover most major public policy issues. But our three to start are meta-science, which we think of as like the science of science, you know, studying how our scientific funding institutions work and how to make them better, to get more breakthrough research, more diversification, younger researchers. Um, more experimental processes, things like that. Um, our second category is immigration, um, with a particular focus on high-skilled immigration. How can we use legislative and executive action to get more scientists, doctors, engineers into our country? And then lastly, biosecurity. So that's both pandemic preparation and prevention, uh, which is obviously relevant to all of us during COVID, but it also includes things like biotech um, and how we pick the low-hanging fruits in biology. It's likely we could have had mRNA vaccine technology maybe a decade earlier if there was urgency in the right public policy environment. Um, and so what other areas of biology are we similarly missing out on because we don't have the right institutions in place? So you you started by noting a DC-based uh, think tank advocacy and research. And I, I just have to ask, why another think tank? And boy, oh boy, th this sounds like it's another one of these gosh darn, gosh darn neoliberal think tanks. Uh, wh <laughs> why another one? And is that what you are? Uh, are you different? What, uh, what are you doing differently? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fair question for sure. There, there are lots of think tanks out there. We are, well, one, in terms of like where we see ourselves in the political landscape is an important question. We're definitely, we're nonpartisan. We plan on working with politicians and staffers on both sides of the, of the aisle in D.C. And both Caleb and I, my co-founder Caleb Watney and I, we started this think tank together. We have experience at both center-right and center-left organizations in D.C. And so we have connections on both sides. And, you know, in terms of political labels, you can call us a lot of different things, but we really see ourselves as part of this emerging community of progress-oriented thinkers. On the center-left, that'd be people like Ezra Klein, Derek Thompson, Noah Smith, Often it's called supply-side liberalism or supply-side progressivism. On the center-right, it's more people like Tyler Cowen and, uh, and others who are this view like state-capacity libertarianism. So you know, recognizing the importance of free markets, but the also that the government can do big things and is, has an important role to fill in our economy and society. And so that's kind of the, the ethos we come out of. I, I, don't, you know, I won't pick any label in particular, but that's kind of the community of people we, we associate with. Um, well, uh, and, yeah. 
we're going to come back to that because I've got some questions exactly about supply side progressivism and state capacity, libertarianism, and your thoughts on those labels and where you fit in there. But you use this term, uh, Institute for Progress, and you you mentioned supply side progressivism, uh, liberalism. What in your mind is progress? And what is the difference between progress and innovation? It's a great question. I would say, well, progress can mean a lot of different things, and we and we mean it in a certain way, and mostly that's just due to our comparative advantage as an institution. So, progress can mean like we've like in our in our mission statement, scientific, technological, industrial, or economic progress, but it can also mean moral progress. Some of these more like intangible values that are harder to measure, harder to improve. Um, we think those are as important, if not more important, than scientific and technological progress. The reason they're not they're not part of our mission is just because we don't think we have a, a, a distinct advantage in knowing how to improve those, what direction to push in. If we knew what direction we wanted to go in terms of improving moral moral progress around the world, how do we even get there? We don't we don't have good answers to any of those questions. Um, the only thing I'll say is that those questions do matter. And for things like literacy, other other basic values, education, freedom, civil liberties, those are all really important. And one key interesting observation is that economic growth and economic progress is highly correlated with all of those values. And so if you do any kind of like just two by two, you know, access and show a correlation between GDP per capita across countries and all of those values, there's an extremely tight correlation. And so there are plausible reasons why advancing scientific, technological, industrial progress could filter down to those other questions of progress, but we're really focusing on a subset of that question. And then in terms of innovation, I would say innovation to me, I mean, based on the root etymology, you think about it's new things. I don't think progress necessarily involves newness per se. It can, obviously. But progress also involves getting more from less. Total factor productivity does not involve necessarily a totally new invention, but it can involve being more efficient, taking the same uh, inputs and getting more output for them. And so I think maybe progress is a bit broader than innovation, but we, we also like innovation at the Institute for Progress. Innovation, progress, uh, you also throw in terms there like total factor production. These are frequently concepts that uh, economists throw around and ideas that economists uh, think about a great deal, not solely economists, but that's actually my question. How do you describe yourself? If I think about the work that you've done, and I'll I'll come back to uh, your uh, incredible Twitter threads uh, in another moment, you fit into a lot of discussions that take place in economics-dominated discourse, uh, along with folks like uh, you mentioned Tyler Cowen and uh, Alex Tabarrok, but also uh, Noah Smith, who uh, uh, is an economist, but now is a a Bloomberg uh, columnist and no longer an academic economist. Uh, You mentioned Ezra Klein. I'll, I'll come back to him as well. Not an economist, question mark. Are you an economist? Is this a field of economics? What what is if if I were advising students interested in the stuff that you're doing? What field should they be going into? Yeah, I would say I definitely it's the field of public policy. I definitely think like an economist. Probably the people I read most often are economists. But I know that also there's like I've never I've never identified as an economist just because there's a certain norm in the economics community that if you don't have a PhD, you shouldn't identify as economist. I think there's an exception if you've ever accepted a job that the job title is economist. I have not had a job like that. I have a master's degree in economics from George Mason. I had a great experience there. learned a lot from people like Tyler Cowen and others. And it's a great community. But because I don't have the credentialing, it would feel weird for me to call myself an economist. And so policy analyst is probably the closest thing. Though, we, And we, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more later. There's much more to DC policy influence than just 
doing analysis, doing better analysis and having the proper research in place. There's many more steps to actually implementing those those ideal policies or making improvements or reforms. But yeah, I would say I work in public policy. So when I think about Alex Stapp, I uh, think about detailed data-driven, data-intensive, including with just great graphs and charts and data summaries, Twitter threads, frankly. This might be a totally uncharitable uh, way to characterize your early career. Um, And I I note uh, that I I think that your Twitter discourse, the level, the volume of uh, Twitter uh, threading coming from you might have fallen off uh, in uh, recent months or the last year or so. I understand you've been working to start uh, a new think tank. Um, I, I wonder both if you could reflect upon uh, the role of your discourse on Twitter and Twitter as a platform to uh, really launch your career and uh, establish yourself. And I, I have a couple of follow-ups uh, on that. I know that some people could hear that or their takeaway might be like, they associate Twitter with like shallow thinking, like, you know, tweets are very short. How much analysis or depth of thought could there be there? I don't think of it that way. I think of it as a form of communication, a extremely powerful and still to this day, mostly underutilized means of communication. And so Twitter can't be the only thing you do. Oftentimes, these long Twitter threads you're mentioning, there are reports that I worked on internally at a previous think tank with you, Gus, and we spent many hours preparing the deep research and analysis. But then in terms of communication, mass audiences can't consume that level of detail, or they're at least they're unwilling to. And so you need to meet people where they are and communicate um, in the places and in the ways that they're open to or mo- most receptive to, to receiving. And so I think Twitter is, it's for people outside the world, because I think it's an interesting thing is that 90% of Americans are not on Twitter. Only 10% of Americans are like monthly active users of Twitter. And so, but it's who those 10% are that matter a lot. It's elites in media, all on the East Coast, mostly in New York, and it's elites in policymaking staffers and politicians in DC who are there on there all day, every day. And this is where the, it's the water cooler for elite policymaking. And so what people are talking about there and how they're framing issues and what matters really is important for making sure that you can influence that process. And so our think tank, we think of ourselves as an internet first and possibly Twitter first think tank, because we think that that conversation matters. And keeping your ideas within the Overton window, making sure you have people like the names we've been mentioning earlier, the Ezra Kleins, the Tyler Cowens of the world. If they're helping promote your ideas there, they're socializing them for people in the sense of um, now an entry-level staffer, a 23-year-old on Capitol Hill, who's in charge of a surprisingly important portfolio of issues. They're looking for signals of like what matters or what's a good idea. And they're often looking on Twitter for them. And so if you're working in public policy, you just simply can't ignore it. You have to have at least some kind of presence on that platform. Yeah, and there, there just has to be emphasis on this point that you made that you, you have to come to your audience. And uh, I'm an academic, and academics are possibly the worst in the world at influencing or affecting public policy because the, the coin of the realm for us is still uh, 30, 40, 50, 100 page articles and book length projects. And uh, as you say, we, you and I uh, have worked together, and I, I've seen the amount of effort that goes into taking a 30-page policy report or a legal brief or something like that and distilling it into five tweets. And that is an, it's an art. And it's uh, something that as uh, an academic, I think about a lot. And I think we all need to be thinking a lot about how do we actually communicate our ideas. There's so much value in that. Beyond thinking about how you communicate 
ideas, though. I, I think that there's something remarkable about how you think about policy generally. So I, I'd like to uh, just ask hypothetically, when you're doing a deep dive into some new issue, some there, there's some topic coming through the transom or you find something interesting in public policy that you don't know much about, how, how do you uh, approach thinking and learning about that issue? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my, my first thought goes, of course, to, to early COVID, because this is a situation where um, this this one news event took over the world. It's all policymakers want to talk about. It was obviously the most important issue in the world. This is early 2020. Um, and so as someone working in D.C., mostly on antitrust, privacy, other tech, you know, traditional tech policy issues, I didn't really have an angle for my issues and, and no one really wanted to give them attention at that time. And, and it felt weird to, to talk about other things. And so I thought, you know, how can I lend my expertise or at least my experience to working on whatever little small thing I can do to help mitigate the effects of COVID or, or make this, this bad situation less bad. And what I ended up doing was um, we're <laughs> collaborating with Caleb Watney. I was at the Progressive Policy Institute. He was at the R Street Institute. And it's both a mix of learning new things and taking previous frameworks or worldviews and combining them. And so the new thing, is like, it's spring 2020. There's a huge debate over masking. You know, how important are they? Should we be saving masks for medical workers? Are cloth masks sufficient? Um, or do we need like surgical masks or N95 masks? There's this whole mask debate. So Caleb and I said, one, we have this abundance mindset of instead of rationing scarce masks, we should think about policy levers to make them abundant for everyone. Two, you can apply like simple logic of probably a surgical mask is better than a cloth mask, probably an N95 mask is better than a surgical mask. And then beyond that, you, you really do get out of your depth as a non-expert to the new area. And you have to start learning and consuming massive amounts of information. I'm consuming that on Twitter and elsewhere. But a key thing for us was this is a small insight for your readers. If you work in public policy, the absolute goldmine is the Congressional Research Service, CRS reports. They do amazing like 20 to 50 or 60 page analyses of very esoteric topics that only people on Capitol Hill who work in this area care about. And so Caleb and I thought like, okay, we have a goal. We want masks for all Americans. Universal mass. Our paper was called Masks for All. And our, our framework, our worldview was we don't trust the government to like actually produce the masks directly. We have tons of examples from history of how government direct provision just doesn't work as well as free markets. But we also recognize that there are market failures and private companies don't know how long the pandemic will last. And so they're scared to make investments in new manufacturing capacity. Um, and there's just chaos in the market. So how can we combine the best of each? And that would be through targeted deregulation. So letting different kinds of companies produce masks that were necessarily certified to do so previously. And also using the massive purchasing power of the federal government to guarantee future demand. So we, we advocated for advanced purchase guarantees for masking. And those kind of put together and then, and then you do a deep dive on a Congressional Research Service report on like, what does the De Defense Production Act allow the government to do? And how does that, you know, how can that be leveraged to create more masks? And so it's like reading that whole report to write the paper combined with the pre-existing worldview of what we think markets are good at, what we think the government is good at, and pulling that all together. Unfortunately, we wrote the paper. We didn't get the exact policy outcome we wanted, but we also weren't told by anybody we were wrong. No one said, like, you made an error, which was comforting because it was a totally new domain for both Caleb and I. 
And yeah, it was an interesting experience and in a totally novel domain. So you mentioned two kind of disjunctive thoughts in that response. One, uh, you mentioned, we, we don't trust the government to get this right. Lots of history uh, where it doesn't work. But then you also uh, mentioned the Defense Production Act and how can we leverage gov- a government buying power to try and get this done, which I, I think dovetails uh, nicely with what I think of as your intellectual brand or the the movement that you're kind of part of. I'm going to ask what might be too too much of an inside baseball question for folks who haven't listened to this podcast, which I assume, Alec, that uh, you have. You you should be listening to uh, Ezra Klein's uh, podcast. Did you listen to Ezra Klein's discussion with Alex Tabarrok the other day? It's actually in my queue. Caleb listened to it and said it was amazing. It's, it's my next one up I'm listening to. Okay, I'm going to just uh, slightly preview it for you. Ezra Klein and Alex Tabrock. Uh, Ezra is uh, talking to Alex about public choice economics and learning a bit about public choice, uh, its concerns and uh, limitations. But one of the things that uh, they they do there is they talk about their uh, uh, comparative worldviews on the policy side. And Alex talks about state capacity libertarianism. And Ezra talks about supply side liberalism or progressivism. And and I wonder if you can just uh, share your thoughts on both these two worldviews and uh, your own, where you come from and where you fit into uh, that discourse. Yeah, I think I think they're both pushing in the same direction from different starting places, right? One from more of a free market right of center with state capacity libertarianism, one from more of a big government, what can the state do center left view with, with supply side progressivism in particular. I like the label supply side liberalism more just because I think progressivism has its own baggage right now or comes much more freighted with, with meaning a lot more things. But I think a key thing right now, and I think maybe this is just, we'll see how evergreen this is in the answer, but We're talking at a time in a very particular context in the U.S. policy debate where we have 7% inflation year over year, which is the highest in, I think, at least 40 years. So really, it feels like the 1970s from a macroeconomic perspective. Um, We just are coming out of a pandemic where a lot of we've had a lot of supply chain disruptions due to the the COVID. And people are wondering, like, can we build things anymore? It seems like mega projects are more expensive than they ever have been. They're often bogged down in environmental reviews. That are, that are often not about substantive environmental concerns, but they're being weaponized by NIMBYs who don't want building in their backyard. A lot of people on both center left and center right sense that this is a problem. And we want, if we want to achieve big things and make more progress, we need to have different solutions. And I think the key probably is that on the state capacity libertarian side, they would mostly just talk about what are the regulatory barriers stopping all this progress from happening? How are, you know, land use and zoning laws, um, regulations in the healthcare sector. There's just tons of regulations that if we just rolled those back, the market could take care of it. And then I think in the more progressive liberal side of things, they would agree with those, but they would put the emphasis more on, well, there are all these market failures. If we just you know gave the market free reign, they would pollute a lot more. And the things they would build or emphasize wouldn't be socially beneficial. We'd just get more like ad tech or something would probably be a kind of concern they would have. I think not totally unfairly. And so I'm in the middle. I would probably say that aspirationally, I'm, I'm closer to the Ezra Kleins of the world, but maybe realistically, I'm closer to the Alex Tabrocks of the world. Just because you can sense this in Ezra Klein when he talks. The way he talks about, like, he had a column recently about the, the Biden administration's approach to supply-side liberalism. And his basic take was, like, their, their rhetoric is good, 
but the policy substance is totally just like mainstream democratic policy from the last 10 years. It does not recognize this new environment that we're in. And so we actually aren't seeing change on the ground in terms of like what policies are being put forward. Like, is there actual deregulation happening? No, like we're just talking about more subsidies, which is like almost the worst possible answer to the the problems we face in this current moment. Yeah. So uh, with some apologies to listeners, I uh, should have uh, done a little more legwork in explaining uh, kind of what these worldviews are and kind of the the essence of them. And Alec, please uh, uh, correct me or update or refine this if uh, you think helpful. The the essence of both uh, this supply side progressivism and state capacity uh, libertarianism is that the state is not doing a great job. The government isn't doing a great job at a lot of stuff but there are really big things that we need to do. So let's get the government doing a couple of really big things really well. So state capacity, libertarianism, let's build up the state's capacity to do groundbreaking virus research. Let's, and supply side progressivism, let's have progress on the supply side. The state should be doing really big things to drive progress. So they're, they're both tailored around this idea of the state doing a small number of really big things, but then there are challenges of how do we actually get the state to be doing those things? Is that right? Yeah, I think that, that's basically correct from my reading of both of those camps. Uh, and I would think in general, it's just a dissatisfaction with the cost sharing or subsidization approach to public problems. So in the, over the last few decades, it's been just like throwing money at problems on the demand side. And it actually hasn't been, it's not been great, but it's also been up in the worst because since the Great Recession, in my opinion, we've had lukewarm demand. And if you look at inflation numbers, they've been mostly below target for like the last two decades, basically. And so it's not been great, but it's not been the worst. But now we're in a totally new environment. Now that the economy is overheating and we have more demand than we know what to do with and there are supply chain problems. Now there's really a focus on production. It's what can the economy produce and who's doing it. And so from the state class libertarian side, they would say like mostly the economy just needs to be having restraints of government pulled off of it and then it will bounce back and be fine. And from the supply side progressivism part of it, they would say that the government needs more of a guiding hand, but still recognizing like we need to increase the supply capacity. Well, Alec, we are about to do a bit of an experiment with you. We are uh, going to go to break. And when we come back, I would like to ask you to uh, share and compare our top five lists of big policy initiatives or ideas. So, uh, Alec, you've got a bit of an assignment during this break. Uh, Jot down your top five. These are things that we should try and do. And when we come back, uh, we will discuss and see whether you and I have similar or vastly divergent lists. And listeners, uh, we will be back talking with Alex Stapp uh, about the Institute for Progress in a moment. Momentum. It's building at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with game-changing work in precision agriculture, nanoscience, and digital humanities. We're unlocking mysteries in brain research, solving the impossible with remote surgery using robots, and we're creating bold futures with world-leading research in early childhood education. We don't slow down, and we're not letting up. We are Nebraska. And we are back talking with Alex Stapp about the Institute for Progress and progress generally, and 
big ideas that uh, possibly could have impact in the world. So before the break, I gave Alec a assignment and uh, listeners, you all implicitly had the assignment as well to come up with a top five list of policy ideas for progress. And Alec, I have a list of my own. So let's just go uh, one at a time, each of us sharing an item on our list. And I guess for my items, you can tell me why this is a good or a bad idea for progress. I'm a, a lawyer and a law professor, so I think about law stuff a whole lot. So top on my list is broad-based decriminalization and ending really aggressive initiatives such as the war on drugs that tend to criminalize uh, vast swaths of uh, regular conduct and throw a lot of uh, American citizens in jail, taking them outside out of the, the workforce, out of the education system, and uh, diverting a lot of our resources towards the carceral state. I like it. I endorse. You say de- decriminalization. I think that I'm 100% in support of. On this particular issue, I always want to be careful at the nuance between decriminalization and legalization. I also know like, I've, I, my thinking in this area has been informed a lot by Mark Kleiman, former, I believe he was at UCLA, researcher. He passed away a few years ago. But his point was always that you want decriminalization because, yeah, the actual drug war itself accomplishes nothing. But you should be wary of full legalization because then a large commercial industry pops up that lobbies for itself, that gets a massive economies of scale. So all of a sudden, like pure cut drugs of every variety are available for like pennies and it just like creates weird social effects. And so I, I'm for those reasons, I'm I'm still wary of full legalization, but I'm all on board for the pro-progress effects of, of decriminalization. Okay, uh, item one on your list. Item one on my list is, uh, and I'd love to get your feedback on my list too, um, make zoning like Houston. So I think that you, you, we talked about like for this list of five, it's like, they're pretty, my list is pretty ambitious, but I think it's like not impossible. So you at least want to be able to point to like a place where something like this exists. And so I, I would like to abolish all zoning if possible, but that's, I don't think that's realistic. So in, in Houston, they have a de facto policy where like, I believe there is no zoning in the whole city, but certain neighborhoods can opt out of it affirmatively with a supermajority kind of vote. And so a small minority of the city where they really care about having certain kind of zoning rules in place does have them. But for majority of the city, it's mostly by right construction. So I think that is like probably the right solution for most of the country is that like you want to quote unquote buy off the NIMBYs who have the strongest preference by letting them like opt out in their little enclaves but mostly trying to keep the majority of a city's footprint by right construction. So the the question and the the challenge for zoning reform, of course, is, as you say, the the NIMBYs, the the folks who are opposed to it because uh, they are are concerned that's going to devalue their uh, property for various reasons, reasons, some legitimate, some not, many not. the, the question uh, then is, how do you overcome? How, how, what's your solution to NIMBYism? I actually, I think I actually have a couple. Um, not my unique ideas, but they're fr- borrowing from friends. So I think basically the problem with, with current land use regulation is it's happening at the wrong level of government. It's mostly at like the municipal or even like neighborhood level. And you really need to go up the stack of government layers or down the stack. So if you go up to the state level, state or national, but mostly likely we're talking about state level here. A governor and the state legislature can think about aggregate economic growth across the entire state, spillovers, 
clusters that they want to build in terms of new uh, industries. And they really can internalize a lot of those costs and benefits and make better decision making with more trade-offs. And so they can afford to piss off smaller smaller uh, groups of voters. But at the local level, it's also virtually impossible. And the most engaged, active voters are senior citizens with most with a lot of time on their hands and they vote in every election and they're very loud at meetings. And like that's not going to happen at the, at the local level. Alternatively, you can go down the stack to the actual city block level. And this is an idea from my, some of my friends in the UK, Ben Southwood and John Myers. They call it street voting over there. Um, and the basic game theory in a sense here is that if you allow an individual city block to vote on how they should be zoned, the first movers recognize that they will make a lot of money um, from upzoning before everyone else does. And so you create this situation where they will vote to upzone because they will make money. But in the long run, as more places upzone, the cost of, of housing does go down because you're increasing supply in the long run. But it kind of breaks the equilibrium where individual homeowners do stand to make a lot of money if an individual block votes to upzone in a way that if there were a neighborhood or citywide change in zoning laws would not be true for an individual homeowner. So there, there's something in there that uh, dovetails with an item that I had on uh, my list. So I'll, I'll jump to that uh, item. It, it wasn't my number two, but uh, incorporating a whole lot more education about institutions in and the design and uh, operation of government um, and political systems into primary and secondary education. So teaching people about government processes, the structure and operation of the administrative state, and getting into mind for young people very early on, not just what government is and what it does, but how it operates and what its limitations are. And you mentioned uh, the idea of pushing decisions up or down the stack. That, that is such an important thing for us to be thinking about, and it's completely absent in our political discourse and most voters' calculus of voting because they, they don't think in these terms. They don't think, well, at what level of government should we be thinking about these issues? Should this be a, a state level issue? Should this be a city block issue? Should this be a federal issue? We tend to think, I care about this issue, government do something about it. E education reform is arguably impossible. <laughs> but as an, as an educator myself, I, I have to believe that there's stuff that we can uh, uh, do there. And th this one of my favorite papers, oh, this is terrible. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the Princeton author who uh, coined the term uh, kludge or kludgeocracy. Um, is it Steve Tellis? Yeah, Steve Tellis. Uh, the, the idea of uh, kludgeocracy that uh, our, our government is cobbled together from lots of different institutions, each of which has decision-making rights and veto authorities, and they're all kind of last minute, we need someone to do this, so we're going to give you this power, and it turns into a, a thicket of decision makers that we, we can't navigate through. That is, that's the result from of a government designed on an ad hoc basis uh, by folks without a sophisticated understanding, uh, which is most of us, of these issues. So uh, your, your response to that brief rant? Uh, it's a good rant. I'll, I'll just say that I'm a bit more pessimistic on education interventions in general, whenever it involves, yeah, if we just make you better informed, we'll get better outcomes. But that's why you're in the academy and I'm not, Gus, and I, I wish you all the best in, in the fight, win those battles. And so I, I hope you're successful, but I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic, unfortunately. 
Well, uh, on that, brushing aside my uh, naive item on my list, what's the next on your list? <laughs> next on my list, and mine aren't in rank order of importance. They're just, I think these are all good ideas. This is kind of related to the first one. I would say repealing NEPA at the federal level and CEQA at the state level. And so for listeners, NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires like environmental impact statements to be done prior to any major product projects uh, on federal land or that cross interstate boundaries. Etc. Um, and then CEQA is at the state level in California, but many other states have these kind of laws, California Environmental Quality Act. And again, it's similarly about a very process-oriented, document heavily every potential impact your project might have on the environment or any species in the environment. And there's no substantive protections in these laws. It doesn't say, if we find this, you can't do X. What it just says is like, document it, and then we'll have a discussion as a community about what we do ne- on the next steps. And so because it's a process-oriented law they're often abused by people who don't care about the environment they just like don't want a project being built uh in their neighborhood or community for a variety of reasons again like we talked about earlier some legitimate some not depending on your perspective and so they really have been become abused or exploited to an extent that i think was not foreseen by the the policymakers who implemented them so at the very least they need to be updated and provide many more exemptions if not entirely repealed that's more more ambitious so th- this uh, ties back in, as you said, to your uh, previous idea. I, one of the things that we've seen in recent years is NEPA, SEPA, these tools, which were really meant to be tools to help uh, protect environmental causes by forcing disclosure and study of environmental impacts. Um, they've come to be used to uh, actually prevent large pro-environment projects by groups that care about preserving the value of their land or their uh, ability to have a a nice vista looking out over the ocean. They don't want windmills for wind power built uh, that are going to obstruct their view. So they use these processes to slow down the development of these really pro-environment systems. And actually, my next thing on my list is of a different sort, but relates to energy. Massive, massive government investment into nuclear, both uh, fission and fusion research. Nice. I mean, this is, uh, I'll let you explain more if you want, but this is, as, as my, my third item was Operation Warp Speed for Clean Energy. So I can talk about that more too, but if you want to do more background. You, you go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, so nuclear is a subset of this one for me, so I think we're on the same page here. By Operation Warp Speed, again, for your listeners, this is what, we, this is what got us the COVID vaccines under the Trump administration. They identified six candidate manufacturers ahead of time, including Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, et cetera. And they, they gave these companies both direct subsidies to stand up manufacturing facilities prior to FDA authorization so that when the FDA authorized the vaccines to safe and effective, they, can, they already had doses that were being manufactured. And then secondarily, maybe even more importantly, the government committed to buying hundreds of millions of doses from these companies if the drug, if the vaccine they, they developed was found to be safe and effective by the FDA. And so again, for similar to the mass conversation we talked about earlier, this provides certainty because private companies don't always know what the demand for these products will be in the future, how long will the pandemic last, what demand will there be for certain vaccines, et cetera. This really de-risks the process for the private sector, but then lets them figure out how to actually invent the vaccine and create it. I think this is an amazing success, a perfect story of collaboration done right between the private and public sectors. And why aren't we using it for way more things, including clean energy? nuclear, like you mentioned, geothermal, carbon capture and sequestration, because part of our economy is never going to decarbonize or not in the near-term timescale. Particularly heavy industry will likely need natural gas or some other kind of dispatchable energy source for a long time. 
Uh, and so we need to think about how we get carbon capture and sequestration done right, battery technology, et cetera. And so we need massive government subsidies saying the government will be the buyer of first resort for X you know, units of energy from any, any clean source and really give the private sector a carrot to go out and chase. And then just to your point about nuclear, Gus, I'm usually the guy just being like, let's throw more money at things and less on the deregulatory side relative to our friends in this community. But I think in nuclear in particular, there does seem to be quite a bit of appetite for private sector investment already. So I don't know how much the subsidies matter for nuclear in particular. It's really more of a regulatory question, in my opinion, there. Like, the more you read about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the more you just realize, like, this is a disaster where they're just, because of their mission statement is only to prevent nuclear accidents and to maximize safety, they have ignored the benefits of clean energy from nuclear sources for the last 50 years since since they were started as an agency. And so I think we have to get the regulatory environment right for nuclear, or it doesn't matter how much money we throw at it. Yeah, you you probably know this. I'm forgetting the details, but if I'm remembering right, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they have a program in place to streamline the development of uh, the approval of prototype modular reactors or something like that. And they, they've had it for like 20 or 30 years and they have never actually approved one. Yeah, I think, I think we're still waiting for that. I think that's what you said. I think is true. And also an even broader statement, which is mind blowing, is that since they were started, I believe 1973 or 1975, but in, since the early 1970s, not a single nuclear facility that submitted its operation license to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has reached production. So we've had nuclear reactors go into production since 1975, but they had submitted their application to start to the previous agency before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission started. So not a single company that submitted its license to this agency has reached operations. It's just mind-blowing. 50 years of just like nothing. And I'm actually right now in my mind envisioning a, a, a chart that I'm sure if you were doing a Twitter thread on this, you would have. Uh, and this brings us back to the Institute for Progress and the idea of progress. If you look at GDP growth over the course of humanity uh, up until uh, basically post-Chernobyl, post-Three-Mile Island, 1970, 1980s era, um, when we started dialing back on nuclear, GDP really was... A, directly correlated with energy consumption per human being. So the amount of energy that you and I consume is directly correlated with and tied to arguably defines our well-being. And this is why we have uh, the current environment crisis. We are consuming more and more energy per person. And with the, the uh, wealth, uh, the dramatic increase uh, in wealth of the, the global South, I mean, humanity is doing better than ever in terms of individual welfare, but that gets powered by something. And right now it gets powered by carbon. Exactly. And I think just one thing I'll add to that, that I agree with all of that. And for your listeners, I think it's called the Henry Adams curve, at least the, the, the main chart I've seen from um, a book called Where Is My Flying Car that Stripe Press recently published. It just show, shows, yeah, a tight correlation up until the 1970s and then um, a decoupling of energy and GDP growth, but GDP growth being much slower than energy growth since the 1970s. One thing I'll add there to your point about welfare improvements in low-income countries is that this is why technological solutions to climate change matter so much and a degrowth mindset will never work is because one, I don't think it's politically palatable in any democratic country to pursue degrowth. Voters will not vote for it. But two, even if you convinced the rich countries to pursue degrowth 
in, with the hope of decarbonization of the economy, it would be immoral to ask developing countries that didn't get a chance to burn coal in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, you know, as they were developing and intensifying their own economies, to have to stop now and impo- further impoverish themselves for the sake of the globe and climate change. And so what we need to be doing as rich countries is subsidizing and accelerating clean tech that we that can then open source or hand over essentially to low-income countries. And then it'll be in their economic interest to use the clean energy option because it's cheaper and more plentiful than the dirty um, fossil fuel option. And that's, that's, I think, the actual viable path forward. And it's the morally right one. Well, we are rapidly running out of time. I do have uh, several speed round questions I want to throw at you. Uh, I, I will mention uh, one of the last items on my uh, list and let you mention one of the last items on your list. Similar to massive investment in nuclear and fusion, uh, uh, fission and fusion, on the biomedical side, really surge spending to cure specific diseases. So instead of the the current approach to medical research funding, uh, which is largely undirected by the federal government, and to the extent it does come from the federal government and the NIH, it goes to a wide variety of areas, find specific diseases, and for the next three to five years, this is our funding goal, or possibly even longer. We're going to cure this disease and develop a technology to do it. And we're going to cure this disease and develop technologies to do it. So that that's uh, uh, the last item I'll share on my list. Well, I love it, Gus. I would not have predicted that I would pick more of the deregulatory ones and you pick more of the investment and spending ones. But I, I, lo- I love all of your list as well. So I'll pick for the last one of mine. I'll just say that I had a deregulatory biotech one, which is F- I think the FDA should move away from binary approval for drugs. So saying right now the current system is like either a drug is safe and effective and basically all insurers, public and private, are required to cover that drug because the FDA has approved it or a drug is not approved and therefore it's illegal to sell it in the United States. There are some small exceptions to both of these categories, but like in general, we have a binary system. I think that leads to terrible incentives. Just quickly, the example that comes to mind is the Alzheimer's drug that the FDA recently approved, Aduhelm. It I believe cost, I want to say, $60,000 for an entire course of treatment. And its effects were not really proven. Uh, the effective part wasn't really clear. And so then the Medicare had to make a terrible choice about, like, does Medicare cover this? And that's still being adjudicated and decided. But, like, it's a terrible system where, like, it should, probably shouldn't be illegal for someone to buy with their own private money this Alzheimer's drug because maybe it will work for some people and it's worth taking the risk if you have Alzheimer's. We also don't want to mandate that the government spends lots of taxpayer money on drugs that are likely not effective. So I think having a more graduated scale of approval, saying something safe but not effective, like that could get us much better outcomes in biotech. So turning to a, a couple of speed questions, these are all going to be the, the same sort of question. Do we spend too much or too little on education? We, that's a great question. We spend too much on education. I am mostly, I think I'm thinking about here in my head are like Mark Zuckerberg donated like a billion dollars to Newark public schools. And I I think the verdict on that was that the money did not help. Uh, These are not questions of money necessarily. It's questions of how we're teaching students. And I just think like an overemphasis on the importance of education relative to other life experiences. The moral of the story here is I'm, I'm somewhat persuaded by Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education, especially for graduate level education. It seems to be mostly an arms race where it's zero sum that you have to get a PhD because everyone else has a master's. When in the past, getting the master's would have separated you from enough people 
who only had bachelor's degrees, et cetera. And so I think we're probably spending too much on education, but I'm open to persuasion. Uh, uh, a credentialing uh, Baumol's cost disease of uh, a sort. Yeah. Um, do we spend too much or too little? And uh, I will uh, acknowledge uh, in asking this question, uh, we are currently uh, a couple of days into Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, not to uh, frame much of our discussion today about that, even though I expect, Alec, you have a, a lot of very interesting thoughts about the top the topic. But do we spend too much or too little on defense? It is a funny thing to say, you know, in, in the face of, I, I assume the military will be getting whatever it wants for the foreseeable future because of events like Russia invading Ukraine. And they already did have lots of power in Washington, D.C. But I would still say we spend too much just because it seems like I mean, a lot of our spending on defense is mostly about to go back to Alex Tabarrok and public choice and how funding decisions are actually made. Most of it's spent on projects that benefit a wide swath of congressional districts. Uh, that's why military braces are spread out across the country. Um, it's why certain military projects are done piecemeal so that different manufacturers and different political districts get a piece of the action. And so we're, whatever we're spending currently is thinking it's $700 billion per year. It's probably being spent very inefficiently. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that we should make sure that our allies are spending higher levels of of their GDP for national security, just as we are. Last question, a variation in form. Does private industry misallocate its research and development spend, or is private industry doing a good job with uh, its spending on progress? Yeah, I would say they're doing a good job on progress, but that is misallocated just in the sense that this is a a quote that I actually telling Ezra Klein that made it into one of his articles that I think the government does a poor job if it's trying to control the means of production but I think they have a better role as controlling the ends of production. And so by that, I mean, it goes back to the Operation Warp Speed question of like, I don't trust the government based on its record in the U.S. and in other contexts, foreign governments, to directly figure out how to develop a vaccine. But I do trust the government to say, probably vaccines, therapeutics, masks, these are things that have strong spillovers uh, when, when large numbers of people use them. And it's probably underprovided by the market. And so directing massive government spending and investment at things that are market failures or have, you know, large externalities or spillovers um, really can change the direction of what the private sector is producing in a socially beneficial way. And I think that we should recognize that that useful role of government. Well, Alec, uh, th- this has been a uh, great discussion. I could easily just keep peppering you with questions for an- another hour or so, but Sadly, the little hand tells me it's time to rock and roll this time. So it's time for us to uh, uh, take our leave. Any final thoughts? Yeah, Gus, it's been great. Thank you for all the, all the awesome questions. Pleasure talking with you again. And yeah, thanks for having me. I'll just, as a final statement, I'll say, I want to slip my fifth one in there because I think it's so important. My fifth idea was a green card cap exemption for any educated immigrant around the world. High-skilled immigration is incredibly popular, has bipartisan support. Majority of Republicans, voters support high-skilled immigration. Um, I support all immigration, but we should take our wins where we can get them. And having an uncapped green card program for educated immigrants is a no-brainer for me. Oh, I, I was expecting that one from you. And my my follow-up question was going to be whether 
uh, uh, U.S. immigration policy-induced brain drain from the rest of the world is on net good or bad for global progress versus domestic progress. But we will uh, have to leave that question for next time. Thank you, uh, uh, Alec. We have been speaking with Alec Stapp, co-founder, co-CEO of the Institute for Progress, which I have to mention as well has the best URL out there progress.institute. Strongly suggest everyone uh, check that out. And I'm sure that we will uh, hear much more from you and your colleagues in the future. So thank you, Alec. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. I've been your host, Gus Hurwitz. I'm glad that you joined us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center or submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show is produced by Elizabeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, wherever you're going, progress will help you get there.